Hi, listeners. Just a quick warning before you listen to today's episode. This one deals with extremely graphic content and is intended for a mature audience only. Coming up. I did kill Kenyatta Band. But I want you to tell it like it is if you're going to tell it. Any father would have done the same damn thing. Okay, Mr. O'Neill. Please, I'm not going to warn you again. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. He's just 11, but today he testified in his father's murder trial, the same man who's accused of stabbing him and killing his mother and sister. A 2018 night so painful to recall the boy wasn't even in the same room as his father. I just saw my dad holding a shotgun and my mom, like, and mom screaming at him. And um, I just saw her, like, she was, like, stumbling outside, and then I just saw my dad chase her. Did he do something to your sister? Yes, he uh, hit her with an axe in the head, and then in the back, and the, the back and then the head. And then, like, I saw her eyes roll, and then there was blood everywhere. I was lying on my stomach, he had his foot on top of me, and he was holding me down. And he was like lighting a match. And when you gave your interview to Detective Dirks, were you still laying in a hospital bed when that happened? Yes. And when you were laying in that hospital bed, did you have tubes in your arms and you were hooked up to some machines and stuff? Yes. In Tampa, Florida, a man by the name of Ronnie O'Neill was recently found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. It was a shocking double homicide back in 2018, and in many ways, the trial itself was shocking to so many who were there to see it, reporters in the room, including Bo Zimmer, who is an investigator and reporter at WTSP in Tampa. Bo, thanks for being here with us. Tell us about this case a little bit. Let's go back to 2018, actually. Were you covering uh, the case when the murders originally took place? Yeah, I've I've worked at the station for a long time. I typically have worked uh, a variety of shifts, so I oftentimes worked the night side shift. Occasionally, I'd fill in on the morning show. Uh, whatever the case, this happened back in March of 2018, and I vividly remember uh, being called out there uh, for this, you know, breaking story uh, and and what was initially called in as a house fire that may have involved some type of domestic situation. We got out there. We didn't have a lot of information, but we knew that a child had been critically injured. Uh, there may have been other fatalities and that one man was in custody. So, Bo, you started hearing details along with others about what happened uh, in following days. Tell us about what you were hearing at the time and who the victims were. Yeah, so this happened really, really late at night on the night of March 18th. And the next day is when the sheriff's office started releasing some of the initial details. And already folks there in the neighborhood who had been out there overnight, who had seen all the ambulances and even the helicopter landing, knew that something horrific had happened in this house. Uh, We had started learning that there were young children involved we didn't know the extent of, of what happened, but we knew one of the children had been severely burned and had to be airlifted to Tampa General Hospital. We knew another child had died in the home. And then we had also heard that there was a fatality just outside the home of a female victim who turned out to be the girlfriend. 
Bo, there was video evidence uh, of what happened that night, right? Yeah, so so luckily we have video that was shot by a neighbor that documents a lot of this, how it actually happened in real time as the sheriff's office and the fire crews are showing up. And this was actually key evidence that was played over and over again during the trial. But as the initial sheriff's deputies are pulling up, you've got smoke pouring out of a house. You've got uh, a potential murder victim over in a neighbor's yard. So the responding first responding deputies are trying to figure out what's going on, while at the same time, the fire rescue crews are pulling up and not sure exactly what they're arriving into. Um, and at some point, uh, Ronnie O'Neill, the suspect in this case, comes out of the garage, just emerges out of the house and it, it takes deputies a few seconds to realize what's going on, but they initially immediately try to take him into custody. So tell us what happened when they tried to arrest Ronnie O'Neill. That didn't happen easily or, or without a fight. He emerges from that garage. Uh, he's spotted by the deputies. And, and so initially things go well. They're asking him to put his hands up and to, uh, you know, comply with their orders. And initially he does. Uh, a deputy actually takes him down to the ground and begins the process of trying to handcuff him. And at that point, that is when he jumps up and starts marching towards other deputies who are now shouting commands to get down, to get down. And he refuses to comply. And at that point, uh, multiple deputies fire their tasers, uh, in which case he falls to the ground and is then handcuffed and initially then taken into custody. But then when all this is going on, there's another scene going on that night before Ronnie O'Neill was arrested involving his son. Tell us what happened. So just before Ronnie O'Neill uh, had emerged from this garage, uh, his little boy, his critically injured little eight-year-old son, uh, comes as the deputies described it. He came staggering out of this home. And the deputies can tell this is a little boy. They, they can't tell exactly what's wrong with him, but he's clearly injured. He's badly bleeding. A deputy gets him on the ground in the front yard and, and does an initial assessment and then realizes how badly injured this little boy was. Now, at the same time, firefighters had already arrived at the home, but they're arriving into a situation that is unknown. And there have been reports of an active shooter. So their command staff makes the decision to have them pull away from the scene around the corner until the scene can be contained and declared safe. But at that point, this little boy is, is critically injured on the ground, and the, and the responding deputies who are there are urgently trying to get those firefighters or paramedics back to get this little boy the help he needs as soon as his father was taken into custody. All right, so a serious and really awful situation happened inside that house, but police were still just trying to figure it all out at the time. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they've got this this father who emerged from the home, uh, and and now he's been tased, he's handcuffed on the ground, and, and, and in the trial, the deputies are, are reporting how they're trying to use their feet. He, he refuses to turn over, and he still has those taser prongs in his back. So they actually use their feet to kind of get them turned over because they, they don't want to risk getting shocked themselves. 
and and Ronnie O'Neill during the trial made a big deal out of that, that, you know, these big deputies were kicking him on the ground. And, and their explanation was they weren't trying to kick him. They were trying to get him to turn over because he refused to do so on his own. Bo, it would be a while before we learned about what happened uh, inside that house that night, right? Yeah, no, there there wasn't a ton of information, nor did we have all of the details about what happened inside the home. The detectives were slowly piecing this all together, but a lot of that wasn't public information uh, right away. Uh, what I do remember is that uh, obviously there were there were some eyewitnesses that saw bits and pieces of this event that went down, and you know initially we got word that. Uh, this this was not an accidental uh, type event uh, where we had uh, a one victim who had been shot multiple times and that it appeared that this fire may have been set intentionally and uh, the little boy was clearly injured by uh, things other than fire. Bo, I should ask, tell me a little bit about where this all took place uh, just outside of Tampa, Florida, right? Yeah, you know, th- this was a pretty typical normal neighborhood. This was not like a bad area or bad neighborhood. This happened in Riverview, Florida, which is just to the east of downtown Tampa. It's one of our big suburbs. It's a quick, quickly growing area. A lot of uh, retirees, veterans, teachers all live out in this same area. And so, you know, Ronnie O'Neill and his family, they they were known to the neighbors. I mean, people didn't talk with them every single day, but, you know, they had a friendly relationship with some of their neighbors who would wave and say hi. And so the people who lived in this neighborhood knew of this family. They had seen the kids and, you know, obviously knew something horrific had happened inside this house. Bo, I, I know you were there for the entire trial. Have you ever witnessed a trial like this one. Uh, this case had many of the veteran reporters covering it in the area. All, you know, all the different stations had their reporters there covering this entire trial, people who've been covering news and trials in the Tampa Bay area for a very, very long time. Across the board, from the photographers to the reporters who took place, uh, who, who, who witnessed this trial, this was like nothing we had ever seen. I mean, we've covered you know, child abuse cases. We've covered child abductions, sexual assaults, and other murders. This case was different. It was so horrific. And I think a big part of it may have been you had the defendant representing himself. He wasn't able to object or didn't know to object to some of these really, really horrible photographs that might be prejudicial for the jury. Uh, So the, the, the folks who were prosecuting this case, the, the the prosecutors in this case, laid everything out without any objection from the defense. And, and you had just every single horrific crime scene photo, autopsy photo. And for everyone in the courthouse, it was like rapid fire, one horrible image after the other. And it was really one of the most difficult things we'd ever had to cover. Did Ronnie O'Neill ever say publicly or make a statement about why he wanted to defend himself? I didn't ever talk to Ronnie O'Neill one-on-one or, or hear any testimony in the in the courthouse per se, but, but we knew that Ronnie O'Neill had a mistrust of law enforcement, mistrust of the criminal justice system. And I think he just felt like he could be the one to best defend himself. He didn't trust the public defenders. He definitely didn't trust the the prosecution. 
And he felt like if I'm going to get a fair trial here, I've got to represent myself. It's actually not that rare to see. Attorney James Smith tells me accused criminals do turn down lawyers in some cases. Mental illness, which usually motivates the commission of the offense, also leads them to believe they're competent enough to be able to represent themselves. So here in the state of Florida, would you say this is something you see when we're dealing with someone who had a mental illness? Absolutely, because that same lack of competence that leads to commission of the offense usually leads to them believing that they have the ability to represent themselves. Ronnie O'Neill, during that trial, eventually questioned his own now 11-year-old son, the one he injured that night. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, in, in a in a horrific case like this, you know, one of the most difficult things is to have to have uh, the young victim come and testify. And in this case, it was so unique. Ronnie O'Neill was representing himself and actually had to cross-examine his own little boy and, and it was just such a surreal moment in the courtroom. Uh, Ronnie's little eight-year-old son, now 11 years old, uh, appeared via video conference. He was in a room with his mother and some other child advocates. And, and obviously the judge and the prosecution were great as they were trying to ask him some questions and telling him if he needed to take a break, that would be fine. There was a comfort dog there in the room. Uh, if he needed to take a break, he had crayons and markers in case he needed to color if he needed to take a break. But that moment when when his, it was his father's turn to cross-examine his own son, it was just such a surreal moment in the courtroom. It started off with Ronnie O'Neill asking his son, hey, good to see you. How you doing? And his son kept it together and answered his father's questions. But in many cases, we felt like the questions that Ronnie O'Neill was asking of his son were doing more harm to his case than good. So at one point, Ronnie O'Neill asked his son, did I hurt you? His son responded in his 11-year-old voice, yes. And he asked, how did I hurt you? And the son responded, you stabbed me. Bo, the idea of someone representing themselves at a trial like this, one that's as serious as this one, very uncommon. The judge made a point of telling him regularly, my understanding, he could get a lawyer and, and have someone uh, represent him at the trial, right? Yeah, well, so so keep in mind, Ronnie O'Neill is representing himself. So there are no other attorneys there that are going to be making those arguments. And I think if you would have asked Ronnie O'Neill, he would have said, I am completely competent. I am not mentally ill, and I, I'm going to represent myself. Every single day, the judge, as she's required to do, gave Ronnie O'Neill that opportunity and that reminder that at any time, the public defenders could stand, could stand in or could take over the case. They could immediately take over. And, and his standby counsel was there with him by his side for the entire penalty phase of this trial. So at any time, they could have taken over had he elected to do that. But throughout the trial, he said, I'm good. And in fact, the judge multiple times on the record, and she was very, uh, you know, she, she was, she made the conscious decision to say this on the record, but she, she complimented Ronnie O'Neill on his ability to represent himself, that he was, you know, making sense, had a firm grasp on the facts of the case and and was was doing a good job and was very competent, as she put it, at representing himself. I just 
can't imagine. It must have been so odd as a reporter for you to watch all this happening. How did that resonate in the in the room when the judge more or less praised him, if we can use that term, for how he was doing, representing himself? She she was trying to have a cordial relationship with this man who has every right to defend himself. But I thought she was very calculated in the fact, and, and, and she did this purposefully when she said, you are competent in representing yourself. I think she was trying to set up so that there wouldn't be some case down the road or some appeal where someone was going to argue that he was not competent to represent himself. He had adequate representation, and that was a choice that he made. In the end, what did the jury decide, and what was the sentence? Yeah, so the the jury sat through this just absolutely horrific uh, week or two of testimony and evidence and just some of the worst things that you could Im- ever imagine seeing. Um, the, 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 the guilt phase uh, wrapped up. And uh, I mean, I don't think there was much doubt at all from anyone that he was guilty. In fact, during the, the case itself, he admitted he had killed his girlfriend. But all along, he said, but that's not the issue here. I killed my girlfriend, but you all are going to find out why. And so we were waiting and waiting to hear why that was. And, you know, initially, later on, as as we got into the closing arguments, he made the that his girlfriend who attacked the children and that he walked in and just reacted as any father would and was, you know, going, you know, had his fatherly instincts when he saw his girlfriend, you know, injuring his his special needs daughter. I don't think anyone on the jury bought that. I think the prosecution did a really good job of explaining why that was not what happened. It's a verdict in the Ronnie O'Neill murder case. He was found guilty in all counts, convicted of murdering his girlfriend, Kenyatta Barron, and his nine-year-old daughter. He was also charged with attempted murder for trying to kill his son. Jurors deliberated today for less than five and a half hours. Um, But then you moved into the penalty phase. And again, this is a capital murder trial. And that is when Ronnie O'Neill elected to allow the public defenders to represent him. And then it was a completely all new ball game. The public defenders couldn't go back in time and defend him in the guilt phase, but they were able to really bring a whole new picture to the jury and explaining to the jury what Ronnie O'Neill had gone through early in life and some of the mental health issues that he was susceptible to and the state of mind that he was in on the night of these murders. Both the public defenders actually played a major role in the final decision of the sentence for Ronnie O'Neill, right? I, I think this jury was ready to sentence, to recommend a sentence of death in this case. But then the, the the defense attorney stepped in and shared a ton of new information to the jury in this penalty phase. They talked about how Ronnie O'Neill, as, as a little five-year-old child, just getting ready to start kindergarten, was the victim of some severe sexual abuse by 
some family friends or relatives that had been visiting the family home when he was just five years old. And and the the traumatic impact that had on Ronnie O'Neill's life all growing up. And then the fact that those people were never held accountable and the fact that he never received the necessary mental health counseling after that trauma. That was a big thing that helped sway the jury in this case recommend a life sentence rather than death in this case. A couple other factors that that really came into play in the penalty phase, just five months before the murders, O'Neill was was actually the victim of a kind of a random drive-by shooting in the Robles Park neighborhood where he was doing some community service. And and he was critically injured. And, And again, in that case, no one was ever held accountable or arrested. And and so those traumas together, the defense team did a really good job of helping the jury believe that that was a big part of why he went off, you know, the, you know, went over the edge on the night of these murders. Um, they also pointed out some really important evidence that Ronnie O'Neill's biological father um, had suffered from schizophrenia. And that's something that often runs in families, and that Ronnie O'Neill himself had a history of delusional disorder. And they brought in this clinical psychologist who really painted a picture of a man that was in, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a state of severe psychological trauma and who was going through these delusional disorders the night that, that he took his uh, daughter and his girlfriend's life. And that played a big part and even in the trial, it, it was clear that he re- it seemed like he really believed some of these delusional things that really didn't make any sense to anyone else in the courtroom. But it, it did seem that he really believed this and he was very forceful. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, just the thing that stands out most in this trial, both in the opening statements and the closing arguments, Ronnie O'Neill delivering those opening statements, it was it was almost like a tirade as he shouted at this jury that he was he was not an evil man and that it was it was the prosecution and law enforcement that were making him out to look like a menace to society and he promised in this case or the next that he would be found innocent and people would understand why he took the actions that he did you know i have to say i mean this all certainly highlights the fact that an attorney is is trained to do this kind of work, and uh, you know uh, it's why we seek legal counsel. It's why so many of us will choose to have a lawyer in the courtroom, uh, and, and especially again in a, in a case like this where the charges were so serious. A, a key moment in this case was uh, at the conclusion of the of the of the guilt phase. The judge had a heart to heart with Mr. O'Neill, basically saying, "Hey, listen." Uh, you're facing the the most severe penalties we have in our criminal justice system in America. And she urged Ronnie O'Neill to consider allowing the public defenders to represent him. And ultimately, that was the decision that he made. I don't want you to make a decision right now. I want you to give it some serious, serious consideration. All right? The other big thing uh, that I took away from this case is you know, just the the neglect of of or or the maybe perhaps the lack of of m- mental health awareness that we have in our country. 
and how when someone isn't treated for trauma or, or a potential mental health issue early in life, how that can continue to fester and, and can be hidden. You know, every, by all accounts, Ronnie O'Neill was able to hide from the world any mental health issues that he might have been experiencing. And that was allowed by many of the experts' accounts to fester over the years. And that ultimately resulted in the opinion of the experts and the deaths of two people uh, that were important to him, his his girlfriend and his little daughter. All right, my thanks to Bo Zimmer, reporter at WTSP in Tampa. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday, Monday through Friday, with new episodes. Be sure to let your friends and family know about The Daily Crime. We'll see you next time. For Vault Studios, Will Johnson.